This is the story of the biggest theft in history. The big steal of the resources of the biggest country in the world, Russia, by its own government. A Kremlin clique that runs the country like its own personal bank, a clique of bandits. It's also the story of how Russia is using every part of its state machinery in a war many of us don't even realize is taking place to subvert democracy worldwide. In this episode, we're looking back at the fall of the Berlin Wall and subsequently the fall of communism and how those events shaped the future of Russia. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I'm Gavin Esler, and in The Big Steel, we're telling the extraordinary story of how in one generation Russia went from communism to kleptocracy. At its heart, how the Russian government stole the country's biggest oil company, Yukos, from its shareholders and put the man at its helm in jail for 10 years. Mikhail Kordakovsky was sentenced to nine years in prison for fraud and tax evasion. It's a conviction that raised eyebrows throughout much of the West because Kordakovsky had been a longtime political rival of President Putin. The principal beneficiary of the big steal is Russia's president, Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin, and his behavior is ruthless. If we look at the spate of assassinations, and I'm not just talking about you know, the Skripals and Litvinenkos that we know about, but the, the Chechen fundraisers gunned down in, in Turkey and so forth. I mean, this is clearly not a man who has a problem with violence. To begin to understand all this and why it affects not just Russia, but all of us today, we need to take a brief step back to the extraordinary events at the end of the Cold War in 1989. The West won and was triumphant. Some spoke of the end of history. The Berlin Wall fell, the Soviet Union and communism collapsed. But from chaos, a new Russia had to arise and a new historical struggle began. John Kampfner is a journalist and friend of mine. He was there. I mean, it was extraordinary times, and I, I still blink to think about those times. Politically, you never knew from day to day what was going to happen. So things were happening in Lithuania, people were being killed, people were being killed in Georgia. All kinds of revolutions were happening in the Soviet republics, and you didn't know how they were going to end up, whether people were just going to get massacred and and the old order re-established, or if the dominoes would start to fall. And that continued through the coup in uh, August 1991, which again was extraordinary. It was over in three days, but it could just as easily have ended with the re-establishment of strong Stalinist authority. No one knew what the future held. Perhaps hardline communism would return with purges and mass killings. Instead, in the first democratic elections ever for the Russian Republic, Boris Yeltsin came to power. He thwarted the August coup of hardliners, brought his reformist predecessor Mikhail Gorbachev back to Moscow and rearranged the old Soviet empire into a new commonwealth of independent states. Things looked good but those who wanted more Western-style reforms had to move fast. Mikhail Khodorkovsky, Russia's richest man until he crossed Vladimir Putin, told me why he backed Yeltsin. 
Ельцин пришел к власти еще через... Ельцин became president four years later, 1991. And to begin with, at the beginning of his regime, nothing much had changed in terms of the opportunities for entrepreneurs. So when we were standing uh, supporting Yeltsin uh, on the White House, our White House, barricades, we were fighting against the return of the old Soviet regime. So not the Gorbachev regime, the pre-Gorbachev regime. The Soviet Union formally died on December the 26th, 1991. Seventy years of communism were flushed away. But the new Russia was in chaos trying to change its entire political and economic systems at the same time. For some, chaos brings opportunity. Mikhail Khodorkovsky, then a young entrepreneur, had played the old Soviet system and created a small business in the 1980s, so insignificant that the communist authorities didn't interfere. I set up my own small business, which was a cafe for young people. But everybody thought, all the adults said, oh, okay, you know, a few years, we'll give you a few years, and then you end up in prison at the end of that. But at the time then, did you think, I'll set up a small business, I might make a bit of money, but in the end they might close me down, because that's the sort of thing that might happen? Or did you think maybe Russia was in a different capitalist, for want of a better word, capitalist path? I didn't think that Russia was setting off on a different kind of capitalist path. We saw it framed it in a kind of Soviet terms. We thought that it was something in terms of self-sufficiency, um, ability to get a payback for the money invested. Certainly didn't see it as the beginning of capitalism. Just to be clear, in Soviet Russia, profit was a dirty word. Even small-time capitalists risked being shot. In the 1980s, under President Gorbachev, the Kremlin relaxed the rules. And by the 1990s, Boris Yeltsin's government recognised that a new Russia demanded new skills. Khodorkovsky became a Yeltsin economic advisor. He had money, some influence and big ideas. How much of a difference then did Yeltsin and privatisation make? I know books have been written on this, so it's difficult to answer. But how much of a difference do you think it really made? Because some people think it was done too quickly, it wasn't done done properly. Others say it was inevitable and it should be done quickly. Like everything in human life, your question could have two equally kind of pertinent answers. On the one hand, it would have been very dangerous to move ahead slower than they did. And there were two reasons. The first reason was political, purely political, because the Gaida government thought that the window of opportunity was going to be very small. And the second was the economic, economical reason. Under the Soviet Union, our factories, enterprises, plants were not really proper factories or manufacturing plants in the proper sense of the word. Не были компаниями в западном смысле. They were not businesses. They were not companies. Бизнесом были министерства. The ministries were businesses. So, for instance, the oil industry ministry was the equivalent of Exxon 
or British Petroleum. And each individual plant or enterprise could be seen as a branch of that large Exxon, of that ministry. And that branch didn't have to worry about anything. They didn't have to worry about technologies because the technologies were supplied by the ministry, that large Exxon. didn't have to think about procuring equipment because that was also the plan for procuring equipment was also provided by the ministry, the large Exxon. Nor did it have to worry about the sales because that was also taken care of by the ministry. But when there was this collapse of the Soviet Union, the kind of fault lines of the Soviet Union started to pull apart and Soviet Union started to move, the Republic started to move away. And at the same time, the pricing on the market started playing according to market laws. This is when the changes began. So these large exons, these ministries, ceased to exist for political reasons, whereas all the enterprises, each one, had to become a business. So those people who had nothing to do with businesses before and were absolutely unprepared to be at the head of businesses suddenly found themselves managers or CEOs of businesses. And this is why there was a total collapse of industry. And the government decided that the only solution would be privatization in order to bring this new class of entrepreneurs, businessmen, into managing these companies. And at the time, there were very few of those business people around. This is why it took so long, the whole process basically stretched out from 1993 to 1997, for four years. At the same time, it was too fast. We are talking about the population of 145 million people, out of whom maybe from 10 to at most 100,000 people really understood what was taking place for age reasons, for education background reasons, for the way they were informed or had not been informed. And the rest, say 100 million people, minus children, 100 million people were just not ready for the privatization process which started. And therefore, this vast you know, population, as a result of privatization, became losers of that process, not because somebody made them into losers, but because they were not, they hadn't been prepared for the privatization process. And of course, had they had the opportunity which the Czech Republic gave its population to have some time to make head or tail of what was happening, perhaps they would have arrived at a very different understanding of privatization and wouldn't have felt deprived of everything they had before or or being on the losing side. And therefore, such words as market economy or democracy wouldn't have been so mired in, in negativity as they came to be. Khodorkovsky, when we met in London, is engaging, witty and reflective. But it's still difficult to imagine how a cafe owner, a small-time entrepreneur with some political experience, could end up starting a small bank, Menatep, and then taking a great leap to running one of the world's most profitable energy businesses, UCOS, all in a few years. I, at that time, I was doing my business. 
Okay, so I was developing my own business at the time, and I did have some role to play in the government of reformers at the, of, of the time, not at the level of the cabinet of ministers, but at the level of a uh, member of the government. No, no. Oh, sorry, ministry, at, at the level of ministry, sorry. Представление по поводу приватизации. And my understanding and my idea of privatization was in conflict with the idea that the government had at the time. And therefore I had to, to leave. I said, I am going to leave. And I would make good use of the errors they were making. If they didn't want to heed my words, okay, I'm going to make good use of the errors they were going to make. Perhaps it wasn't the most proper way to behave, but I felt hurt. So I left and I went on to do things which I felt was possible as a result of all the mistakes they had made or were making. In the wild west of Russia in the 1990s, clear lines between business, corruption, crime and political power just didn't exist. The new Russia was, for some at least, the land of opportunity. Mikhail Khodorkovsky saw his big chance and took it. His bank, Menetet, bought the state oil company, Yukos. Nowadays, and even back then, ordinary Russians claimed their publicly owned state assets, the family silver, were being sold off cheap to a few speculators. Millions saw their living standards fall, while a small group were to become unbelievably rich. Others say that Khodorkovsky did what anyone with his abilities would have done, and helped prevent strategic Russian assets being bought up by foreign or global corporations. Either way, if the profits were enormous, so were the risks. By 1998, Yukos shares fell to one-tenth of the sale price. But Khodorkovsky was reforming the company, investing in workers and new technology, bringing in new ideas and experienced managers from the West, accountants PwC, and consultants McKinsey. It meant that by 2003, Yukos bounced back and was so successful, it started to attract the attention of big foreign investors. But that international interest meant conforming to international business standards. Khodorkovsky decided to change Yukos to operate more transparently, with a clearer management structure and accounting practices more like the West. Swedish economist and Russia expert Anders Asland takes up the story. What happened is that Yukos came under the control of Bank Menatep that was dominantly owned by Mikhail Khodorkovsky at the end of 95. And then it took four years for Yukos really to sort itself out. And by that, I mean it needed to get control over uh, the assets, as it was then in post-Soviet Russia. You didn't know what you actually uh, owned. There were no clear uh, distinction what was yours and uh, what wasn't. You had to essentially establish it uh, through uh, uh, hardcore uh, core fights. And the only way of getting that done, it was to become the full uh, majority owner uh, uh, and sort out uh, minority uh, shareholders, often um, old uh, managers and uh, workers because they did not uh, quite know how to uh, to handle it and objected to, uh, to everything and were often taken over by hostile interests. So it took uh, four years before Yukos sorted it out. 
But then from 1999 to 2004, uh, Yukos uh, was a star performer in the Russian economy in every regard. It had uh, great uh, corporate uh, governance, its uh, stocks uh, skyrocketed and its production skyrocketed as well. Yukos had more than 50% increase uh, in those four years. Khodorkovsky in the 1990s had been a young man in a hurry, but by the end of the decade he started to think more about the predicament of the Russian people and their future, a potentially rich country with tens of millions of poor people. Of course, apart from the economic and political processes taking place in the country, there was another process running alongside. <laughs> that was me getting more mature and older. Whilst in 1991 I was only 28 years old and perhaps did not really understand other people's problems so well, I was 35 in 1998. Uh, seeing the crisis of 1998, I was really impacted by it quite heavily. And the crisis opened my eyes to many things because I had to spend a long time, a lot of time, talking to different people. So people who worked in the oil fields that belonged to my company and in the enterprises and the plants. I asked them for support, although I realized, and they were in fact in a really difficult situation themselves. And I did get their support. And I felt responsibility, a huge responsibility on my shoulders. So when my own situation got better, I felt the need to pay back, to give back to the people what they had in fact lent me. My business partners me in this. And so all the different projects, including Open Russia, were the result, with the support of my business partners, of that awareness that suddenly came upon me. I get the impression that the older you, 35, look back at the younger you as if you had been some kind of cowboy in the Wild West, and then you kind of decided it was time to do something different. Is that, is, is that a fair way of putting it? Yes, indeed. Mm. Well, doing something different is exactly what Khodorkovsky decided to do, even though it was to result in a disastrous conflict with Vladimir Putin. But at first, through his Western-style reforms, the company survived and thrived and became a model others could follow. By 2003, Yukos was the biggest taxpayer in Russia. But politics and money in Russia are inextricably linked. Rivals suspected the company's success meant Khodorkovsky had political ambitions. There were claims he paid for political influence in the Russian parliament, the Duma, something of a Russian tradition. Others speculated he wanted business links with foreigners and was being wooed by America's biggest oil company, ExxonMobil. One of those paying close attention, and not in a good way, was Vladimir Putin. Next week on The Big Steel, Putin makes his move. I think that uh, Putin was very deliberate from the beginning. Putin stands for two things, KGB and organized crime, uh, secret police and organized crime. And that means power and money 
and uh, very little else. The rest is uh, image making, not essential. We'll hear about the clash that sealed Khodorkovsky's fate when Russia's richest man publicly criticized Russia's most powerful leader live on Russian television. When I spoke at that meeting with Putin, I wasn't taking on Putin personally. I was speaking in favor of one choice against the other choice. And yes, it was a difficult situation because I had spoken harsh words in his face. It's interesting that those harsh words are absent from the YouTube recording that you have seen. The Big Steel was presented by me, Gavin Esler, and produced by Martin Points Roberts at Fresh Air Production. Please make sure you subscribe to the series so you don't miss an episode.